Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Today Explained, Ramos Firm, we've talked a lot on the show about places that have struggled to deal with this pandemic. The United States or, you know, the United States and even the United States. But one place that has done a relatively great job over the last year or so, Africa. And one country within the continent of Africa that's had an especially good response, Senegal. Vox's Jen Kirby flew there a couple of months ago. And when she told me that, I was like, Jen, you flew to Senegal a few months ago in the pre-vaccine pandemic? I was scandalized. I was like, Jen, how could you? Well, I felt pretty safe doing it. I took a lot of precautions. You had to get tested before you got on a plane. But I wanted to look at a country that started off the pandemic without a lot of resources. They didn't have a lot of doctors. They didn't have a lot of hospital beds. So how would a country like that prepare to take on a pandemic that has, quite frankly, bested countries far richer and more powerful than Senegal. And, and in terms of the numbers, how'd they do? Pretty good on paper. Senegal has recorded about 40,000 cases and a little over 1,100 deaths in a country of 16 million people. It is likely that that is an undercount and that there are a lot more cases that have not been recorded by the system. But even with that, it compares favorably to a place like the United States, which if we did that, we'd have a fraction of the number of cases and deaths that we have now. Ici votre commandant de bord. Bienvenue à bord du vol Air Senegal SA à destination de Dakar, que nous atteindrons dans environ 6 heures. What do we need to know about Senegal? Well, it's in West Africa, so it's in the neighborhood of a lot of other countries that you may know, like Guinea and Sierra Leone, and it has a porous border with Gambia. It's a former French colony, so French is spoken there, and a lot of other languages as well. And when it comes to, for example, its doctors, there's only about seven doctors per 100,000 people, compared to, say, the U.S., where there's about 260 doctors per 100,000 people. So now I really want to know how they managed to do a lot better than the United States with so few doctors. How did they pull off something that sounds like a medical miracle? 
Well, why don't we first talk to a guy named Abdoulaye Bousseau? Okay, who's he? You're the director of the emergency operations. Is that the correct title? Yes, he's a health emergency operations center. And it's kind of like a cross between FEMA and the CDC. And he's been doing this job for a while. Now it's seven years. It's uh, since 2014. So 2014 is kind of a big year for West Africa because that is the year of the Ebola epidemic in the region. It's been called one of the most challenging outbreaks of the deadly Ebola virus the World Health Organization has ever faced. This is the deadliest outbreak of Ebola on record. Ebola is a pretty rough disease with a really high lethality rate. The virus spreads through contact with bodily fluids and is fatal in up to 90% of cases. Thousands of people got infected, about 28,000, so much lower than COVID, but about half of those people died. And, you know, countries like Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, Senegal's neighbors were hit really hard. And so officials were really worried, you know, would Ebola come to Senegal? And the disease did. Uh, there was one case of Ebola. The victim is a young Ghanaian, a student at university in Conakry. We will track down everyone who is infected and eradicate the problem. We are all working in just one case, and, uh, and I don't know how in the other countries they manage. But they caught it relatively quickly. They were able to isolate the patient and all of his contacts. And that's it. They survived the epidemic with just one Ebola case. And after that, we thought on setting up one structure dedicated to emergency. After the Ebola pandemic, they realized they didn't want to have to respond quickly in emergency every time. They wanted to create permanent infrastructure so they'd be able to be ready for the next emergency when it came. And so they began to build the Health Emergency Operations Center. And it permits us now to be more comfortable, I can say, to face this COVID outbreak. Okay, so Senegal has this sort of agency and system set up for health emergencies like, let's say, COVID-19. So what does it look like when COVID-19 arrives? When the first case arrived in Senegal, which was uh, right at the beginning of March, they basically put into action their Ebola playbook. You need to detect, test rapidly, isolate, and to treat patients. Test rapidly, isolate, and treat patients. It's probably helpful to take those three things one by one because they seem really obvious when we think about COVID now, but maybe weren't so at the beginning. The idea is first to test, of course. And luckily, Senegal has one of the premier labs in Africa. It's based in Dakar. It's called the Institut de Pasteur. At the start of the COVID-19 outbreak, it was only one of two labs in Africa that could test for COVID-19. So for years, we've been working with coronavirus, so we have some experience. Uh, so that's Amadou Sal. He's the head of the Institut Pasteur. I think it's probably helpful to think of him a bit like Senegal's Dr. Fauci. Nice. We do epidemic all the time. And uh, I mean, in Africa, you have 120 epidemic every year. So as soon as we heard about what was happening in China, which was late uh, December, and then we started getting ready for that. And by mid-January, we had the test. And so once the Institute de Pasteur could figure out testing, 
They tried to figure out a way that they could make it so that they could test in all the regions, not just in Dakar. We managed to have in each of the region of Senegal few labs that was in a position to deliver a test within 24 hours. Wait, 24 hours? I mean, I was getting COVID tested in December of 2020, and it was taking like days to get results. They had 24-hour testing um, almost immediately? Yes. As officials told me, the idea of testing rapidly was really important, and they wanted to make sure that testing came back no later than 48 hours. To be fair, they didn't have a ton of testing capacity, but the capacity they did have was rapid and was able to get results really quickly. Hmm. What about the other two that we mentioned, isolation and treating? How did Senegal handle those two? Yeah, so if you tested positive for COVID... Any positive cases, even if they have symptom or no symptom... You would have to go into isolation in a treatment center, which could be a hospital or another place that was set up to treat COVID patients. And also, we took all the contact person mm-hmm. and isolated them also sometime in hotels. We, we, the government rents the hotel during this period. Mm-hmm. But we use it as a quarantine center. Hmm. Basically, just to sort of recap, if you tested positive, Senegal made you go into quarantine and they paid for your room and board and they made sure that you were basically out of your household and out of the community. And the goal for Senegal was, listen, we don't have a lot of doctors. We don't have a lot of hospital beds. So if we can try to slow community transmission as much as possible, maybe we can prevent this pandemic from overwhelming our health system. And did that work? It worked and it didn't work. (laughs) As all things COVID, it was complicated. So the Ebola playbook that they were using was, was pretty intense. You know, if you tested positive for the coronavirus, an ambulance might come to your house with doctors in like full hazmat suits, like the full on PPE. And this would really freak people out. Hmm. And it kind of created this stigma because no one wanted to be the house that had, you know, this kind of scary situation or your neighbors looking. And so it created this stigma around COVID where people were less likely to want to come forward and get tested because they were afraid of kind of getting called out. Hmm. So their strategy was just to kind of freak people out. (laughs) Well, that wasn't their strategy, but that's the kind of unintended consequence of the strategy, I think. Huh. And of course, beyond that, there were other challenges. The policy was really expensive. It's really costly to put people up into hotels. And Boussole told me that 60% of the people that went into quarantine were asymptomatic or had mild symptoms. So they were using all these facilities for people who just really weren't sick and probably could have isolated at home. And the other thing was the families that did have to go into quarantine, you know, they needed support and the government struggled to provide them basic food and necessities. And so in the end, the policy that was meant to slow transmission ended up creating all of these unintended consequences that made it really difficult to make it sustainable, even if it probably did help to slow some of the community transmission. But we are talking about a success story here. How did they manage to persevere in spite of all that? Well, so they decided to, to kind of mix things up a little bit. So once they realized that this wasn't Ebola and people could kind of quarantine at home, they turned their focus to high-risk cases. So basically, the people who are most likely to get really sick, they would make sure that they had access to treatment centers. And anyone else who seemed to be pretty healthy, they got to stay at home, although they would have medical teams check up on them by phone or sometimes even door-to-door to to make sure that their situation didn't change. 
But, you know, especially this fall, their cases were really, really low and people sort of let their guard down. And sure enough, the cases started to pick back up uh, right around the winter of this year. And I'm sure that's a familiar story to almost everyone listening to this, where people were taking restrictions seriously at first, but then less so as time went on. Was Senegal able to be successful in their handling of COVID in the long run over the course of the pandemic? Yeah. So the second wave was definitely worse than the first by far, um, but the healthcare system never was fully overwhelmed. And one of the reasons why it was able to withstand both the first and an even more intense second wave was because of this whole other side of the Senegalese COVID response, which I didn't even really realize until I landed there and learned about it myself. Support for Che Explain comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Jen, you mentioned just now that there was this whole other side to the Senegal story. Um, we have now entered the second side of this episode. This feels like a great time to talk about it. Yes. So to tell you more about it, I want you to meet somebody first. She wish you would one day be able to speak English. You speak English very well. I wish I could speak French. <laughs> Great. I never meet people anymore. <laughs> Her name is Madame Traoré. Je suis Bagyanougor de la Cicaprudis. My French is terrible, Jen. <laughs> she works at a health center in a neighborhood in Dakar. And I really wanted to talk to her because she's a buy-and-go. A buy-and-go? Yes, that's exactly right. A buy-and-go. Voilà. A buy-in means sister to someone's father, so basically like an auntie, and they're kind of like community godmothers. That sounds nice. What do they do? 
Nous, notre rôle, c'est quoi C'est d'aller voir les mamans qui sont en âge de procréer. Donc, santé de la mère et de l'enfant. I heard l'enfant, that means child. Yeah, yeah, that's their job. They have this formal role in the healthcare system where they're basically doing maternal and child health. So, you know, if you're a mom and you just had a baby, they might come to your house and make sure that, you know, you're doing okay. Um, sort of like a postnatal checkup. Or when you have young kids, they'll be like, hey, did you get your kids vaccinated? And so that our goal is to sort of be this link between the healthcare system and the community. Is that kind of like a doula? In some ways, yeah, except for this is, you know, and in pretty much every neighborhood, you might have a buy and go. And this wasn't like a pandemic innovation. The buy and go is like something that's been around for a while. Right. Yeah. This has been a part of the Senegalese health system because, as we've talked before, Senegal's healthcare system doesn't have a ton of resources. So you may live in a neighborhood or a village that only has one very small clinic that might only have a nurse. And the job of a buy and go and other healthcare volunteers is to make sure as many people in the community and their neighborhoods are connected with the healthcare system. And then during COVID, Bangos, like Madame Chori, played a much larger role in the pandemic fight. Donc, euh, notre rôle, c'était quoi? C'est de sensibiliser, d'aller de maison en maison. So, what was our role? It was to raise awareness, to go from house to house, to go to schools, to go to tailors' workshops, to mechanical workshops, etc., where there are agglomerations, even where there are children playing soccer in the soccer fields. We've been everywhere to raise awareness. I was organizing talks. When I see, for example, children, students, I organize talks. I discuss with them. I ask them questions. I talk to them a little about the disease, what to do, what to avoid. Hmm. They also fought misinformation and some of the stigma that we talked about in the first part of the episode. So, you know, they would encourage people to get tested and say, listen, it's not a shameful disease, but the best thing you need to do is get medical care. The reality is it was a dialogue and it was really important because these are trusted figures. So people tend to believe or understand or want to listen to what they have to say. Man, if only we had trusted figures. <laughs> if only. <laughs> so these buy and go figures, these, these doula types... They really make a difference in Senegal. It seems so. I mean, Senegal had a lot of the same problems that other places had with misinformation and, you know, people bristling against restrictions. They said it was, oh, it's just a city disease or it's a fake disease and all those kinds of things. But at the same time, because they were, you know, figures who had a lot of respect in their community, people knew them from, you know, other things that weren't COVID-19, they were able to get people to understand that this was about their community. And so as Amadou Saul told me, there was a sense of social consensus that compares favorably to a place like the United States. Kind of like a bottom-up strategy, I guess, as we recently covered on the show, like, it sounds like it's kind of the strategy that the United States might be trying to shift to, to get local doctors more involved in getting out the vaccine because they are the trusted figures in their communities. Did, did Senegal have any more sort of bottom-up structures in place? Yeah, exactly. And the doctor analogy is really perfect. And that's why um, a lot of health experts I talked to before said, you know, one of the reasons why Senegal did so well is because they like had the language to do this before. But it wasn't just Bayangos and other people in the medical field. There were plenty of youth groups and women's clubs and other volunteers who all got on board with the COVID response in their communities. 
Some of them did health outreach, like Madame Chare. Some of them helped provide resources like food to families who were struggling during the pandemic. Or they, you know, just came up with projects that they felt their community needed. Take uh, an organization called Declic, for example. Declic. Yeah, Declic. It's a youth organization that works in Ziegenshaw, which is in Senegal's southern region. I met with two community organizers, Demba and Miriam, and Miriam was very excited to talk to me. <laughs> I actually just ran f- uh, straight f- from my bed to here, like just had time for a shower. <laughs> um, and the reason she was excited to talk to me is because they were really proud of the work that they had done during the pandemic. Generally, they work on community improvement projects and they work with youth. And that's a pretty big range from like 18 to 35. Um, and they basically say, like, listen, guys, what do you think you need to do to improve your community? And so they may come to them and they'll train them and help them figure out how to do those projects. And then they might go back to their community and then they train other people. And it's kind of like this chain of, I don't know, community solidarity or community volunteerism. And what exactly did they do during the pandemic? So they did a lot of the same educational work as uh, some of the buy and goes I talked to. And they helped people try to protect themselves. And Ziegenshaw, I should say, is a pretty rural region of Senegal. It's very far outside a place like Dakar. And they don't have a ton of access to PPE and masks. So one of the things that Declic did was try to teach people how to make those things. Uh, Many people here know how to sew. So why don't we use that? And it's not that hard to find material for it. So people had the material, they had the skill set, but they did not know how to make the stuff. So basically we taught them. The other thing they did was to teach people how to make hand washing kits so uh, they could, you know, sanitize their hands. And Miriam told me a pretty funny story about that, too. We had another program not too long ago where we had to go to a remote island and we found one of those kits, like the hand washing kits. We did not expect it to be there, but we learned that there was a volunteer who was on site. And when she came back to her island, she basically just taught everything that we taught her and she decided to make those things there too. So it was very, it was, um, I don't know, it was a big surprise that our reach went that far, to be honest. Wow, so like this is one of those like teach a man to fish situations. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> it's, it is. And like the scale is pretty big. You know, Demba told me they had about 300 volunteers for their COVID project. And those volunteers held about 6,000 activity sessions in their home communities. And those sessions reached over 100,000 people. And that stuff may sound really, really basic, like helping people build hand-washing kits or wearing masks. But you do that over and over and over again, and it works. And so you said you have no cases in the region where you're from there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we don't, we don't have cases. Hmm. What's your takeaway, Jen? I mean, you've been covering this pandemic for a year and you went to Senegal to find out how they pulled this off. But is is what happened in Senegal applicable to the rest of the world? Was there something sort of distinct about these buying goes and the fact that they had this system in place? I think it's it's complicated. I would say that there are definitely some caveats. For example, Um, You know, Senegal is not the only country in Africa that seems to have handled the COVID outbreak well. And we should definitely give credit to the policies and the people that helped make that happen. But there are some reasons that we just don't understand why places like Africa did better than, say, the United States and Europe. They're a very young population. Senegal has about 60 to 70 percent of its population is under 35. Hmm. So it's likely that 
there was a lot more cases that were recorded, but they might be mild and asymptomatic, so they didn't get hit as hard. But even with those kind of caveats, the big takeaway that I learned from Senegal is that sometimes with COVID-19, you don't necessarily need a lot of resources. It's helpful to have resources, and you should definitely be prepared, which Senegal was. But I think, you know, Senegal had learned to fight outbreaks and to do a lot with a little for a long time. And those institutions and the trust that was built really made a difference when you needed to cut through kind of the fear and the confusion around some of the measures related to COVID. And I think there are some lessons for even countries like the United States to learn from that. Well, Jen... Thank you for your reporting, and um, I'm glad you traveled across the world and came home safe. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And got to the beach for half a day. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) Also, this country where, like, 70% of the population is under 35 sounds like a lot of fun, and I want to go visit. I mean, they just lifted all the restrictions when I arrived, but I didn't have, like, any friends or anyone to go out with, and my fixer is like, you must go home, like, at sundown. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't enjoy it. (laughs) One day. One day. Jen Kirby, along with our colleagues Dylan Scott, Herman Lopez, Julia Belouz, and Dylan Matthews, plus a whole bunch of other great people, did a whole dang series called Pandemic Playbook about how other countries successfully and less successfully handled this pandemic It's worth checking out, and you can find it over at Vox.com. Just search for Pandemic Playbook. And another quick plug, Jen's a part of our foreign team here at Vox, and our foreign team makes a podcast called Worldly. Today, they're covering a very important story, the mass grave at that Canadian residential school you've surely heard about. You can find Worldly wherever you find Today Explained. Thanks. Thanks. 